Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome to Behind the Knife Trauma Edition. This is our team's fifth podcast, and we are excited to continue to share our expertise in trauma with you. My name is Marcy Feynman, and I am a trauma and acute care surgeon in Baltimore, Maryland, as well as the General Surgery Residency Program Director at Sinai Hospital. I am joined by Dr. David Sigmund, PGY5, at University of Illinois at Chicago, an education guru, as well as Dr. Elliot Hout, trauma surgeon extraordinaire from Johns Hopkins, past president of EAST, and incoming editor-in-chief of Trauma Surgery and Acute Care Open. Together, we will be your hosts in this episode as we discuss best practices in management of rib fractures. David, why don't you give us a case to start off? Uh, thanks for that introduction, Marcy. Uh, so in today's case, we have a 36-year-old woman with no significant past medical or surgical history uh, who unfortunately crashed her bike into a curb while riding to work. She was brought to the emergency room in stable condition, and it was actually the emergency room team that worked her up. Her ABCs were clear. There were no additional findings on the secondary survey. The chest x-ray identified four left-sided rib fractures, ribs six through nine. The trauma surgery service is then consulted for additional evaluation and management of this patient. Elliot, what would your next steps be uh, for this young lady? Uh, thanks for that case, David. Um, so the first thing I would do is I'd be getting a CAT scan in this patient. Uh, anybody with rib fractures is at risk of having other associated injuries. Uh, you know, there's other vascular injuries. They could have a hemoneumothorax. We're not going to talk about that, th that today. We've already talked about that and covered that in a prior uh, episode about pigtail catheters for hemothorax, but we're not talking about that today. Uh, but the other things I want to look for are uh, intra-abdominal injuries, especially as you get lower rib fractures. Patients are at risk for liver injury, splenic injury, uh, hollow viscous injury. So I'm going to be getting a CAT scan on this patient to look for other injuries, uh, but also to, to characterize the rib fractures and get an idea of, of how many there are, what they're what they look like. So we've now uh, found this patient. They have isolated rib fractures. We've gotten the CAT scan. There's nothing else going on. Marcy, what are you going to do with them? What's your plan? Uh, that's a good question. So for me, the vast majority of these patients end up getting admitted for about 24 hours. I know she's young, she's healthy. If she proves that her pain is really well controlled in the emergency department and we give her an IS and she pulls two liters and feels really strongly about going home, okay, fine. Uh, but that's usually not the case. And I find that admission for pain control is really important. Um, and also to have physical therapy and especially occupational therapy see these patients. A lot of times they have really good uh, life hacks for how to help navigate home life with a bunch of broken ribs. So I think they're a value add to see patients. Um, I mentioned instead of spirometry, I think it's super important. It obviously helps us measure how well pain is controlled. Also, a lot of patients will say their pain is fine, but they really mean it's fine if they're lying in bed, not moving and barely breathing. So we do need to make sure that they can still breathe when they get home. So for me, this patient is, unless she strongly protests, is very likely getting admitted, regular floor bed, um, 
for pain control and PTOT. Those are my thoughts. Um, but I think pain control especially is really important to discuss because that's one of the big mainstays for treatment. David, do you have a specific regimen that you like to use for patients with rib fractures? Uh, all right. Yeah, exactly, Marcy. I really think you hit the nail on the head there. Really the most important thing with these patients is pain control, but we have to remember you know, why this pain control is so critical. Obviously, we want to reduce our patient's pain, uh, but a lot of the secondary complications and issues these patients have are due to respiratory depression, which kind of limits the pain control options we can have to things that that aren't also going to contribute to that reduction uh, in respiratory drive. So really, I think the mainstay of treatment here is multimodal pain control, finding lots of different ways to affect their pain, to control their pain, um, to give them pain control without sort of any respiratory inhibition. So right off the bat, your basic things, your acetaminophen, your NSAIDs um, are going to be great there. You can also schedule them so that they're getting, uh, instead of getting one thing every four hours, they're getting one thing every four hours, but offset. So they get something every two hours each. Uh, and then you get into your, a uh, little bit more off the beaten track things. Gabapentin is great for neuropathic pain. can be very helpful for these patients. Uh, muscle relaxants like Flexeril can also be very helpful for these patients. Lidocaine patches are great, uh, relatively low side effect profile, and you can put them around the affected area. Um, basic things like ice packs or heat packs can also help. Uh, and even kind of more advanced things like ketamine uh, or something you can use really in a pinch. Obviously, a lot of these medications have uh, side effects and you really need to consider them in your patients. But a young, otherwise healthy patient like this, I think all these things can be great options to kind of control that pain, especially in the acute phase. Uh, but, you know, sometimes all these things, even when you throw everything in the kitchen sink of these patients, it just doesn't really quite work. They're still having a lot of pain, still having difficulty breathing, still a lot of splinting. David, that all sounds great and multimodal works very well for some patients but it doesn't work well for everybody. So Marcia, maybe you can tell us about some of the other potential options on top of all those medication options that David just told us about. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, we did mention that pain control is super important. We want to avoid pneumonias and things like that. People need to breathe. So if we maxed out all of our medications, um, both oral, IVPRN, uh, PCAs are always an option. If we need something even more aggressive, we have interventional modalities that are options too. Um, either individual nerve blocks are possible, um, on-cue pumps. They can be uh, inserted on the floor. You don't need it, you know, anything special to do that. Epidurals are still the mainstay. Still usually done by anesthesia, but I think it varies by shop who does those. But thoracic epidurals are one of the most effective methods of pain control that we have. you got to weigh that with the fact that it may increase your length of stay, though, because that's going to be in for a few days before we transition over to PO. Um, those are the things that we really use. Elliot, do you have anything else either that you do or know that's coming down the pike? So I think it's a good question. You know, we utilize our anesthesia pain team for a lot of these. Um, you know, they're the experts. You know, uh, I can't place an epidural. That's something that they would do. Some of the other things I think trauma surgeons do, individual single-shot nerve blocks or the on-cue pump, I think trauma surgeons routinely do. But I think if you're going to be using uh, epidurals, that's where the anesthesia pain co team comes in 
place. Uh, there's also a new uh, new idea. Uh, it's called an erector spinae block. There's more and more literature coming out about the benefit of that approach. It's a little bit easier to do than an epidural catheter. I don't have any personal experience with it, but I think we're going to be hearing more about that uh, in the future. So I think we've covered the basics for this young, healthy person with these uh, injuries. Uh, but, you know, sometimes things changed. Uh, what happens, Marcy, it's a different patient scenario. Now we've got a 72-year-old. She falls from standing in her apartment and ends up with the exact same injuries, multiple rib fractures all on one side. What are you doing for her that's different than for the young, healthy uh, 36-year-old? That's a great question. Um, I had said I was admitting the young, healthy 36-year-old. Obviously, I'm definitely admitting the 72-year-old. Uh, and for... For me, anybody 65 or older with three or more rib fractures goes to the ICU, at least for 24 hours. Um, there's data that shows that every rib fracture above three in this patient population increases your mortality uh, by about 8%. So that can get really significant. They need somebody who's going to watch them consistently. They need continuous pulse ox. They need really aggressive pulmonary toileting with IS uh, or a flutter valve. And they need somebody who's going to really stay on top of them to make sure that they do that all the time. And if after 24 hours, um, you know, they can do well on their IS and their pain's controlled, fine. They can downgrade. And if not, then they stay in the ICU a little bit longer. But that's, you know, it's kind of dogma at this point for me. Uh, over 65, three or more rib fractures lands in the ICU. And I like that. And, and that's my approach as well. I like the holistic view that you're looking at these patients with to get a feel for what they're doing. Um, but I also, uh, I like some of the more consistent scoring systems. Uh, there's one, uh, it's called the PICC score, which is you know, specific for patients with rib fractures. Uh, and it looks at the P, the C, the P, the I, and the C. Uh, it looks at pain, inspiration, and cough. It gives you points for each one. And it helps you really kind of see how a patient is doing over time. Is their score improving? Is their score getting worse? What are you going to do with those patients when their score is changing? It makes it, the, uh, it takes away that subjective and makes it a little more objective uh, for these patients with rib fractures to kind of see what they're up to while they're in the hospital. Yeah, I really like that. It seems like it it follows our general gestalt, but it puts it more into numbers and hard data, which as surgeons we tend to like, I think. But David, is there, right, so now we have the 72-year-old uh, with the same number of rib fractures uh, we've decided she's going to the ICU because that's the most appropriate place for her. Is there anything you would change about your pain strategy? So I think that's a, a great question. You know, as we talked about, you want multimodal pain control. You don't want to reduce respiratory depression. We mentioned all these drugs uh, with their different mechanisms of action. But, you know, it's important to remember your 72-year-old patients have a whole bunch of uh, different set of problems and potentially different medications already on board than your 36-year-old patients. Um, you know, acetaminophen, that's great until your patient has liver disease. NSAIDs, that's great until you have to worry about kidney disease or potentially ulcers. Um, cyclobenzaprine has a whole litany of drugs it interacts with, can cause a lot of problems with 
If your geriatric patient already kind of has polypharmacy on board, that's something you need to be really careful of. Um, so you really have to, you know, take a case by case basis, uh, particularly with your older patients and adjust the medications based on their uh, existing issues um, and medications. And that all absolutely 100% makes sense. So you've done all those things, the patients in the ICU, David, you're the senior resident on call, and you get a call from the ICU nurse, hey, Dr. Sigmund, this patient, she just doesn't look really good. Could you come see her? Can you kind of walk us through either what you would do or what you would expect your intern to do, you know, to reevaluate? What are you going to do for this patient? So I've absolutely been uh, in this boat once or twice. It's definitely a concerning condition when you're the senior uh, and you finally think you've got everything under control and you get called back in for that patient that you maybe thought wasn't one of your sickest patients. Um, with all trauma patients, I think it's critical uh, when you have a change in status or deterioration in status that you go right back to the basics. So you go back to your ABCs and totally evaluate this patient because uh, it's important to think that maybe this deterioration is not just due to their rib fractures, but maybe some other underlying worsening issue. Maybe there was a missed injury. Maybe there's a lung contusion um, that you weren't aware of or that you know didn't declare itself initially. Um, so evaluate your ABCs, do your basic tests. A chest X-ray is great uh, or potentially bedside ultrasound to examine for something like a hemothorax or pneumothorax that might be causing this. Get an ABG right away. There's a reason this patient is in the ICU uh, and that's to monitor them. Um, once these things are not working, maybe you can consider some non-invasive ventilation tactics. Um, problems with that is a lot of that positive pressure ventilation, even if it's non-invasive, uh, really can worsen that pain. So those are all important things, I think, uh, to monitor with these patients, uh, especially if they're not improving the way you would expect. And of course, a really low threshold to intubate, right? If there's any evidence of uh, retention of CO2, they're not ventilating well. If they end up with altered mental status, especially from their CO2 retention or acidosis, they absolutely need to be intubated. Um, all right, team. Well, it seems like the algorithm for rib fractures has been pretty straightforward for a while. Ensure the airway is okay. Make sure that we support breathing, mainly by controlling pain uh, or through non-invasive or invasive ventilation if needed. Frequently reassess parameters until the patient's stable. You know, and hopefully most people go down that pathway appropriately. Elliot, in the last, like, what is it, like, 50 years you've been practicing? What's changed in your time? Thanks for that very nice question, Dr. Feynman. Uh, <laughs> no, I've not been practicing for 50 years, but I have been a doctor since last century. Um, I would say the biggest thing that's changed um, in the past, I would say, decade is the push towards operative fixation for rib fractures. There's a lot of data now, but also a lot of zealots out there about the benefits of rib plating uh, for patients of different types. Uh, and I think lots of, lots more people are doing this. I think it's a much more frequently done procedure that trauma surgeons uh, can routinely learn and practice and use. Um, I think we don't have a lot of great answers yet, uh, but I think we are certainly doing it more and more. So Marcy, I'm curious to know, um, you know, is rib plating a part of your practice and and who do you decide you're going to plate and and what information do you need before you decide you're going to go ahead and do that? Yeah, you know, it's it's true that it ebbs and flows, you know, rib plating. It 
was a part of my practice. I actually learned to play it in residency, however many years ago that was, and did a fair amount of it. Uh, we had the right patient population for it. You know, we had a, a ton of big time blunt trauma where patients came in with their chests just crushed. And so we had the patients that had a flail segment, you know, at least two or more ribs broken in two or more places. Um, we had the patients that had huge displacement of their rib fractures where you could almost see them going into lung. And we found that 3D recons of their chest CTs were really helpful pre-op in our planning. The patients we did plate, uh, the flailed segments, the, the huge displacements, um, tended to be the lateral rib fractures. We really weren't fixing really anterior or really posterior um, rib fractures because we just couldn't get a good landing zone. Um, Elliot, do you do any of this? Do you have any specific technique that you use when you played? Uh, yeah. And this is uh, interesting. You know, when I was a resident, I never did this. When I was a trauma fellow, it wasn't a thing. And I didn't do this as a fellow. This is something I've learned in my practice now that I've been in attending for, as Marcy said, 50 years. Um, and I think the first thing to do is learn how to do this well from someone who's done it before. Uh, there are certainly courses you can go take. Uh, you can find a partner at your uh, hospital, you know, a, a trauma surgeon who does this or an orthopedic surgeon who's got experience in this or a thoracic surgeon, someone who can help you and teach you how to do this technique, just like you're going to learn any new technique in your practice. Um, so uh, I have learned how to do it and I do it, you know, we don't do a ton of them because our patient population doesn't necessarily fit that, you know, I work in an inner city trauma center with lots of penetrating trauma. We don't have the big, bad, blunt chests that I think this is probably most beneficial for. Um, I think, uh, you know, we don't have time to talk about every single nuance of the technique, but in general, these are patients who may already be getting a thoracotomy or a VATS uh, for hemothorax or retained hemothorax or something like that. If they've got a big thoracotomy incision already, it's nice because then all these ribs are exposed and you can see them. If not, you can often make just uh, some small mini incisions uh, to get enough exposure to the rib fractures. You have to expose them. You have to get down on the rib. You have to get enough so space on either side of the fracture to be able to line those fractures up. Uh, you want those two ends of the bones to line up. And then uh, mostly we're using these external plates and screws. Uh, you want at least three screws on each side of the fracture uh, to really uh, get it into place, realign it, and get it in, in position. Um, each of the different systems from the different companies are slightly different and slightly nuanced the way they work. Um, but I think get used to a system that you're going to use, uh, use it again and again. And, and the more you do it, just like any other type of surgery, the easier it becomes. I've heard there's like internal plating too. It's not something I've ever done. Have either of you either seen it or know much about it? Uh, I'm glad you asked. I've, I've actually only used it once personally, but I've actually gone to several uh, of the workshops. So it's a great thing about internal fixation. Um, you only have to use two screws, which is very convenient. Um, the internal stabilization kind of fits against the rib uh, a little bit better. So the you know, in the old fashioned uh, kind of outside plating, um, you have to, there's a whole bunch of effort made into shaping and, and forming the plate, which I always found very difficult. 
Um, a nice thing about this one is as you uh, tighten the screws, it actually kind of bends the plate to fit the rib. Um, so the, the whole fixation process is a little bit less difficult. Um, unfortunately, it does require VATS, which means you have to be at an institution um, that demands that. Um, but the nice thing is while you're doing VATS, you can visualize the fracture from the inside. Um, and then, of course, it also requires, obviously, single lung ventilation if you're doing a VATS. Again, another thing your institution needs to provide. Um, I think the final maybe disadvantage with this internal fixation process is that the screw is actually, since it's coming from the inside out, you really have to file it down carefully. Um, so that way it doesn't poke through the skin. But that's another disadvantage. But, you know, it definitely shows there's a lot of cool, interesting research uh, going into rib fixation. And we'll kind of see where it goes and, and where the research drives us. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this is kind of a new frontier. Not Plating's been around for a while, but I think we still have a ways to go to figure out exactly the patient population that is going to most benefit from these techniques. I would agree. And, you know, if you're a, if you're one of the zealots who plates a lot, you can show 10 different papers about all the patients that benefit from plating. And if you're an anti-rib plater, you can find all the papers that show it doesn't benefit patients in certain populations. So I think, like you both said, I think we're still not 100% sure who it really, truly benefits. Uh, and I think, David, like you said before, more research, and we need to keep working on trying to decide who is the right patient and when to do it. 100%. You know, we covered a ton of ground today, as usual. Um, for even more info, please check out our show notes and references. Uh, thank you all for listening. And don't forget to go out and dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.